First Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you. Everybody say elders. elders. All right, that's going to be our theme for today. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ and as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let's pray and ask God for his help this morning. God, we do ask that you move in our hearts as we believe that this is your inspired, inerrant word. We ask that you make it come alive in our hearts, that you help us speak to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last Sunday, a massive biker gang in Waco, Texas, had a fight with another biker gang. Nine people died. 170 people were arrested. Now, this isn't the first time Waco, Texas has been in the news. If any of you remember back to those of you that are old enough, to April 19th, 1993. I will never forget it because I was 12 years old, and that day my brother nearly poked out my right eye. But that has nothing to do with my story. And I have since forgiven him, and so we can move on. The Branch Davidian cult leader, David Koresh, burned down their compound and killed himself and 79 other cult followers who were following this cult leader, this dictator, this quote-unquote religious leader, David Koresh. Now, a lot of folks get uneasy when we talk about leadership in church because nobody wants to be part of a cult, and nobody wants a dictatorship. Now, I think we can say praise God for the fact that God doesn't want us to be a cult either, and God doesn't want us to have a dictatorship or any other church or sect within the church. Now, at the same time, though, because we don't want to be a dictatorship, often we look at the American form of government and we say, ah, a democracy. By the people, for the people. Not a bad idea. And so a lot of times we think democracy, then, is the actual right normal way to organize a church. So the leaders, not dictators, they are nothing more than elected representatives of the people who do what the people want them to do. And if the people don't, or if the leaders don't do what the people want them to do any longer, what do the people do? The people remove the people, the, the elders, the leadership from their midst. Now, God has ordered his church. And what we see in the scriptures as God has ordered his church is that church leadership is neither a dictatorship nor is it a democracy. It's, none of, it's neither of these two extremes. One of my former pastors 
enjoyed saying that a church, and I think I agree with them, or I do agree with them, the church is not a democracy, but rather a church is a theocracy. Which means that at the very center, the church is ordered around God. God is the authority of this church and of every other true gospel-preaching church. Let me explain it for you in this way. Herding sheep was a massive business in the ancient world. It still is today in many parts of the world. In the ancient world, a chief shepherd would have a very large flock. Let's say, I'll turn this into a parable for you. A chief shepherd, shepherd would have a large flock. He would have under-shepherds who oversaw parts of his flock. So, Chief Shepherd Michael, all right? Let's say he has a flock of a thousand sheep. And Chief Shepherd, Shepherd Michael hires five under-shepherds to each take 200 of his sheep. So he hires Tom, Richard, Henry. Give me a name. Dilbert. Dave. All right. Just random. Not biblical names. Some of them are. And each one of these under-shepherds has 200 sheep given to them to watch as their own flock. Chief Shepherd, Shepherd Michael goes away on a trip for a whole year. And these five under-shepherds guard, protect, and are to feed their smaller miniature flocks. Now, Chief Shepherd Michael comes back after the year, and Tom, Henry, let's see if I can remember our names, Dilbert, Dilbert it was, and Richard have done a, a, a fine job. They've fed the sheep, they've protected the sheep, they've led the sheep. Dave, on the other hand, you see, Dave ate the sheep food more than he fed the sheep. Instead of feeding the sheep, Dave enjoyed playing with the sheep. Dave allowed a wolf to get in there. And the wolf had his own meal and ate about a hundred of the sheep. And so Chief Shepherd Michael comes back and he rewards the first four and then he comes to Dave's flock and he finds that Dave returns to him his flock of squirrely-looking, hungry sheep. And a lot of blood. See, Christ is the chief shepherd. How does this passage speak to us today? It speaks to us today, today in the same way it spoke to the original hearers. Listen, wh where we're at in this letter is toward the end. And what we've already established is this fact that we are strangers and aliens traveling through a foreign land. We are exiles suffering in the here and now. In this in-between phase in which Christ has ascended and we are longing and awaiting His second coming. However, the chief shepherd, what he's saying, has not left us to fend for ourselves. The chief shepherd has not said, hey, I'm leaving my flock behind and I hope that they keep it together, and I hope that they somehow feed themselves until I come back. 
But in all reality, the chief shepherd has left behind an order. He has divided his massive flock into smaller flocks. And he has given under-shepherds to be overseers, and to, to, uh, we're going to get into this, to watch over, to be the leaders of these smaller flocks. And so in the same way that they were strangers and aliens suffering in a foreign land, looking to the chief shepherd, trusting the under-shepherds, we are called to do the same. So today I want to take a turn. It's going to feel like a turn in our series a little bit. And I want to talk to you about God, God's leadership structure for the church. The under-shepherds that God has given his flock are called elders. So who is an elder? Now, thank you, Tony. That's true. <laughs> Pop quiz. Now, most of us in this room will never be an elder, and that's fine. You don't need to be an elder to be significant in God's kingdom by any stretch of the imagination. An elder is one role in God's kingdom. However, at the same time, if we don't understand the foundation of who elders are, if we don't understand the making of an elder, if we don't understand the responsibilities of an elder, if we don't understand the, de the demeanor of an elder, and if we don't understand what an elder looks to as his reward, if we don't all understand that, then we are going to be in some significant trouble because you, the congregation, unlike a typical flock of sheep, actually have responsibility to make sure that you have godly elders leading you. And so we're going to take a time this morning to look at this biblical call for eldership. So let's begin, let's jump right into verse 1, and we see the foundation of an elder. So I exhort, he says, the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. So what does Peter root his own eldership in? He begins with the past reality that he has witnessed the sufferings of Christ. And then he looks forward to the future hope that he has in that he will be a fellow partaker in the glory of Christ. And so every elder is first rooted in this reality that they have, through the testified word of the Scriptures, the apostolic message that we have received, we are witnesses of the death of Christ, spiritually, not physically as Peter was, which made him an apostle as well. We are also partakers in the glory that is to be revealed. So bottom line is this, elders are Christians, all right? Don't ever elect an elder for this church who doesn't meet that criteria. But now, are elders then just simply older men who are Christians? So every older man is an elder? No. As a matter of fact, by the time the New Testament was written, the concept of eldership was very established, very well established in, uh, within Judaism. So let's turn back to Jeremiah chapter 29. If you're not quick on the draw, don't worry about it. <clears throat> We're just going to look at one verse. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1. We see here that Israel is in exile. Now, I want you to keep in mind that Peter, as he's writing, is, I believe, looking back at the exile of Israel. 
and he's remembering the exile of Israel and, and saying what we're experiencing today is similar to the exile of Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 21, 29, during the exile, we see this. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah sent, the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving, what's the word there? Elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the people. Now we see here that there are these three roles of leadership within the Jewish community during their exile. Elders, priests, and prophets. Now we know that the role of priest ended with the sacrifice of Christ because Christ's sacrifice was the once and for all sacrifice that ended the sacrificial system. And so the work of the priest of making sacrifices was no more. All right, so we would never call one of the pastors or elders in our church a priest because that role does not exist anymore. Also, the, the office of prophet, capital P, does not exist, meaning that there is one person who is a capital P prophet. All right, so we see in Ephesians chapter 2 that the faith is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which means the foundation has been built, and just as the office of apostles ceased in the first century, so did the office of capital P prophet. What is left? What do we see? The elders. So the elders is actually then carried over into the New Testament and reformed. We're going to get into that in just a minute. But let's back up, because we have to go back further if we're going to understand where this concept of elders came from. So going all the way back to Abraham at the beginning of the Bible, Abraham, ha Abraham had a servant who was to oversee his house. He was the leader of his house, and his servant was called an elder. So this is literally then a servant leader, all right? Now, as Israel grows in Egypt, and as Israel then leaves Egypt, and they're now in the wilderness, there, are, by, there is by this time a formally recognized group called the elders of Israel. And in Numbers, we see that this group, Numbers actually, it's very interesting, Numbers chapter 11, verse 16 there's a group of 70 specifically that are chosen out of the elders to be the elders, all right? So track with me for a second. Moses says, find 70 among you, or among the elders, find 70 among all of the elders in, in Israel who are elders. So he distinguishes those who are quote-unquote elders among the elders. Are you tracking with me here? So what we see with Moses is that not all elders, meaning older men, are actually elders, part of this, this group of 70. And that becomes an established leadership group in Israel who Jeremiah writes to in Jeremiah chapter 29. Now, as we get into the New Testament, elder is maintained for God's people. And not only maintained, but reformed in many ways we see that elders are called to lead the church in the same way that they were leading the people of God in the past. We see that there are qualifications for an elder. And what's, what's remarkable is when we get into the New Testament, it has nothing to do with age. It has everything to do with spiritual maturity. 
So let me give you just a couple marks of eldership within the Bible. We see, first of all, that they are to be spiritually mature. So they are... Paul, by the way, as he's writing to Timothy, an elder, explaining what it means to be an elder, he says to Timothy, don't let anybody despise you because of your youth. Meaning Timothy wasn't a very old guy. So don't let anybody look down on you, but at the same time he does say, an elder must not be a recent convert. Which means that for the biblical concept of New Testament concept of an elder, there is a spiritual maturity, whether the the man is 20 or 80, there's a spiritual maturity that must be attained and witnessed. Elders are also to be men. Now, this is controversial in our world today, but it's, it's very, a very simple concept that God wants men to lead in the church in the same way that he wants men to lead in the home. So as God calls men to be the head of their families, God also calls men to be the head of the church. Now, one question that often comes up here at this point is this. Does this then mean that women have no significant place of ministry within the church? Well, let me me explain it this way. I am called, I believe, to be the head of my family. Does that mean that my wife has no significant part to play in our family? That would be preposterous. You must have never been to my home to make that statement. And I think she would be offended if you made that statement. My wife has an extremely, and it's more than just the kitchen, by the way, right? She has an extremely meaningful, powerful role within our home. You see, we can sometimes be so caught up on one aspect that it almost becomes idolatry for us. And I pray that we as a church wouldn't let that happen. I pray that we wouldn't be so focused on this one place that God has limited to men, and we can't keep our eyes off of that one tree. And it becomes idolatry. Friends, don't let Satan tempt us in this way. We also see that elders are to be a plurality. Now this is interesting, because in our world today we have one leader, one CEO. Not so in the Bible. In the Bible, there is a plurality of elders. As a matter of fact, that word elders is only found in the plural. So our church and every church should have a plurality of elders. So that's the foundation, all right? Are we all there? And By the way, I hope you found, find hope in this. I don't, I don't want anybody to ever think that, that Joel's just being creative in the way that we're ordering the church. Oh, that's an interesting word to use, elders. No. God has ordered his church, and we find great hope in the fact that we can go to the Word and say, what what does the Bible say about how we should structure ourselves? What does the Bible say about who our leaders should be? And let's 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 just live there. Let's just be there in the Word. So that's the foundation. Secondly, the making of an elder. In other words, who appoints these elders? Look at verse 2. So as to live, I'm sorry, verse 2 in chapter 5, not chapter 4, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. I spoke with a sculptor one time, and I asked him how he takes a big block of marble and how, how he turns it into a sculpture. I mean, I've 
I've always been amazed at this, and I wish I could do it myself. And what he said was, I don't make any sculpture. The sculpture is already there, inside the marble. All I have to do is remove the marble that's around it. And there it is. Listen, it's not our job, actually, as a church to make elders. What we see here is that God appoints elders. He says, shepherd the flock which is among you. Who put the flock there? Who put the people underneath these elders? The elders didn't. The people themselves didn't. But rather God did. There's this passive nature to this. God then appoints elders. Secondly, God gives elders a flock. So God places people then under the elders. Now this is a very important point here. Shepherd the flock that is among you. Being an elder is a localized role within the church. And what I mean by that is this. If I leave the garden church, where I've been recognized as an elder, and I go, let's say, to a community Bible church in California, and I begin attending there, am I still a pastor? No. Am I still an elder? No. You are not a pastor slash elder unless you have a people that have recognized you as a pastor. There is no such thing as a professional, trained, card-carrying pastor. And wherever I go, I have this pastoral authority. Friends, I'm a pastor of you, but I'm not the pastor of your friends in California. You see how that works? Now, at the same time, there's another way to kind of turn this and look at it, and that is this, that I am your pastor. I am an elder, one of the elders in this church that God has given to you as an overseer. And here's, here's this third point, that God appoints the elders, but the church recognizes them. So it's the church's job not to appoint them or to make them, but to just simply find the elders that God has called. Pop quiz here. Does anybody know how Peter was called to be an elder? Can anybody remember? It happened over a breakfast. That's the first hint. Jesus was, ah, there you go. Elder. (laughs) Jesus looked at Peter after Jesus rose from the dead, after Peter had denied him, and Jesus says, do you love me? Peter said, yes. Jesus said, are you sure? He says, yes. Do you love me? He says, yes. And he says, fine, based on the love that you have for me. With that at the very center, Peter, feed my flock. You see, Jesus calls, and then the church just simply sees and recognizes those whom Jesus has called to serve in this capacity. Now, this is hugely practical for us. In the future, I won't always be your pastor. Hopefully, I will for the next 80 years or so. I don't know. Can I make it to 100? The, the three elders that we have right now won't always serve us in this capacity. And there will come many times where you as a congregation will 
elect new elders. What we look for is not someone who we can make an elder. Not someone who we can turn into an elder. We just simply look for the person who is already eldering. The person who God has already clearly called to feed. And they're feeding. And they're serving in this capacity. So that is the making of an elder. God makes elders and we recognize. Now what do they do? Let's see the responsibilities of the elder. Look at verse, verse 2. Again, he says, Shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight. Now let's use the shepherd analogy. Let's go back to literal shepherds with, with sheep. Their job is fairly simple. It's a hard job, but it's fairly simple. They are to lead the sheep from one pasture to another, kind of group them together so they can sleep, sleep at night, some soft grass. They are to protect the sheep from wolves, thieves, and they are also to feed the sheep. Now, as we look in the scriptures here and we ask ourselves, what is it that God calls elders to do? It's actually very simple. There's two things right here that we see. First, they are to shepherd, and second, they are to have oversight. Now, can we do a quick, quick Greek lesson? This is, this is big. Shepherd. It's the Greek word poimen. Everybody say poimen. Everybody say poimen. There you go. We've got to learn, learn some Greek here. Poimen simply means shepherd, or in some uh, translations it is translated feeding, because that's what shepherds do. It's also the word that's used for pastor. So when we use the word pastor, all we're saying is simply shepherd. The second word here we see is oversight, and that is episkopos. Does anybody know what denomination we get out of episkopos? Episcopalian. Why do they call themselves Episcopalian? Because they have a bishop. Episcopos means bishop. Now, unfortunately, I think it's unfortunate that the church has developed into having bishops as one single person who, who has a lot of authority that oversees a lot of churches. Because nowhere in the Bible do we see bishops called or to serve in that kind of capacity at all. But rather, it just simply means overseer. Now, why I want you to note those two Greek words is because the three, uh, the three words that we use for church leadership are found in these verses to refer to one position. That is elder, pastor, and bishop or overseer. And so what we see here is that elders have these two responsibilities, and that is first, they are to, sh- they are to feed, and second, they are to lead. Now, how do elders feed? When I was growing up in Akron, Ohio, we had a lot of stray cats come into our backyard. And you know what became sort of a typical response from my mother when we had stray cats come into our backyard? Can anybody guess? Don't feed the cats. Thank you. Stop feeding the cats. Because my sister and I would take out a little bowl of warm milk and we would place it there and these scrawny little cats would come back every day, and pretty, pretty soon they were in the house, right? So don't feed the cats, she would say. Why? Because if you feed the cats, they keep coming back. Now, 
It's unfortunate that churches all across America are not feeding the flock. How do we feed? It's simple. We, we teach the Word of God. That's what the Bible says. That is our feeding. It's the teaching and preaching of God's Word. And so often, shepherds are content with playing with the flock, being best friends with the flock, being personal accountability partners with the flock, rubbing the flock underneath the chin so they purr and so they... Right? And all the while, these cats are scrawny. And you can see their bones and they're hungry and they need some food and nobody's feeding them. What does it look like for a shepherd to love his flock? It first looks like not playing with them or entertaining or, or tickling their, their chins. It looks like feeding them so that they might eat, so that they might come back for more food. And friends, I could say this as far as my own role within this church, that I want to try my best week after week and then throughout the week to feed you. Now, if you ask my wife, she would say that I would love to be everybody's best friend. All right, I'm an extremely social person. And I love talking with people. And, and I don't like it when somebody thinks that I have uh, ignored them or something like that. But you know, if I tried to be everybody's best friend and everybody's personal accountability partner, I actually wouldn't be loving you. I'd be doing it out of the fear of man. And I wouldn't be preparing to feed. You know, when I love you the most, it's actually when you don't see me. And when I'm forcing myself to sit behind my desk and study and think and try to figure out ways to feed you from God's Word. You know that I'm loving you when I am preaching God's Word to you. When I'm not apologizing for offensive parts of God's Word. When I'm giving you the full high-octane gospel. And friends, if I ever stop that, and I ever start just giving you self-help easy sermons that make you feel good, but there's no sense of conviction, I stop using the Bible as my authority. If I ever start that, then you know that I have stopped loving you. And that's when you must remove me as an elder. Are we tracking here? So elders are to feed and lead the flock. Now, how do they do this? We have the foundation of the elder. That's the Word of God. We have the making of an elder. That is God Himself. We have the responsibilities of an elder, and that is to feed and lead. What is their demeanor? Fourth, the demeanor of an elder. How they go about leading and feeding. Look at verse 2 again. Exercising oversight. Verse 3, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So how does an elder lead and feed? Now imagine a wife who on her wedding anniversary gives her husband a huge thank you. A massive thank you for all of the ways that he serves her. And she says to him, I am so thankful that you serve me in the way that you do, that you serve me 
physically that you serve me, spiritually that you serve me, romantically. And, and imagine that the, the wife's husband's response was, well, I'm obligated to because we're married, you see. It wouldn't go over very well on their anniversary, would it? But what if he said, baby, I love doing this. I willingly serve you. I eagerly serve you. I want to serve you. That would change everything. You see, in the same way, an elder is to serve the flock. Look at these three points of demeanor. Number one, willingly. The first qualification, actually, for elders is that they desire to be an elder. Not that they desire the title, not that they desire the office, the, uh, any, any kind of praise that may come along with that, but that they desire the ministry of it. That they willingly get their hands dirty in the ministry of it. And I can tell you this, from our elders' meetings, you could talk with our other elders. There's nothing glamorous about being an elder. It truly is a position of service. And it is hard work, even for a small flock such as ours. But an elder must willingly desire this kind of ministry. Secondly, he is not to do it for shameful gain, but eagerly. I spoke with a man who had, quote-unquote, given up an organized religion. Why? Because he had seen this abused. He had seen elders who are in their position for shameful gain. They're in their position because they want glory, because they want a platform, because they want a voice, because they want fame, because they want everything that God doesn't want them to necessarily have. It's for shameful gain. You see, while some elders may be freed from work so that they can full-time put their, minister, their, their time into the full-time work of being an elder, a ministry never exists for a man. A ministry never exists to provide a man a job. A ministry never exists to provide security for someone. And any elder who gets this confused and begins to believe that the ministry exists for him is immediately disqualified from his role as an elder and must be removed. Secondly, or thirdly rather, we see that he is to not dominate, but he is to lead as an example. Never should an elder be manipulative. Never should an elder use tactics to just simply get his way. Never should an elder use his position to throw down his fist and say, my way or the highway. So how does he lead? Well, he leads by example. You see, an elder is to be a persuader. And we don't persuade with the physical sword, but we persuade with the sword of God's Word through humble teaching, through lifting up the way of Jesus by example. There are two ways that an elder should be an example. Number one, in his obedience. So an elder should be able to be an example in the way that he loves, in the way that he is generous, in the way that he serves, uh, in the way that maybe he's, he, he serves as a, as a father, in the way that he lives as a faithful single person. He should be an example in his obedience to God. But secondly, 
because every elder is a mere under-shepherd and therefore just like you, a sinner, an elder also must lead through demonstrating repentance and confession. For those of you that are parents, you might agree with this, that one of the best ways for parents to teach their kids about Jesus is after we do something really dumb and we have the opportunity to sit with our kid and apologize and ask for their forgiveness and explain why we need a Savior. And elders must do the same thing. Elders are never trying to hide and cover up their sin, but are often leading the way in confession and repentance. You see how different God's vision for pastor is than so much of the church culture. Elder is not an elevated role. Elder is not someone who demands honor, demands his headshot on every piece of literature. He's not the best-dressed schmoozing with the, the, the politicians and those with money. But rather, an elder is a despised shepherd. An elder is to be one who is dirty in the field with hands that are scarred from sheep who have bitten them while he's trying to feed. A face who has been scarred as a wolf was in the midst. So what is the reward of the elder? Let me close with this. What does he look toward? What does he keep his eyes upon? Look at verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So, going back to our chief shepherd, Michael, I think his name was. He comes back from his year-long trip, and there he finds Tom, Richard, Henry, Dave, and the other guy. Right? He reappears. And he rewards those who have done well, and he does not reward those who have failed. You see, there's two realities that we see when we keep our eyes focused on the fact that the chief shepherd is coming back. The first is a terrible reality that keeps me up at night as I remember that these are not my sheep. This isn't my flock. This is the flock of Jesus Christ, and I am merely a servant leader to kind of try to humbly be a part of it and try to feed. How am I doing at that? How well, am, how well are we as elders doing? This reality should lead us to our knees and say, God, help us as we know that the chief shepherd is coming back for his sheep. But there's a second reality here that, that, is, that is hope intoxicating. And that is the fact that the chief shepherd comes back and he does reward. While the work for an elder will be often thankless here, Christ rewards those who have done a faithful job there. However, in Revelation chapter 4, do you know what we see the elders do with the crowns that have been given to them? They lay them at the feet of Jesus. And they say, this isn't, this isn't mine. This isn't mine because it's all been the grace of God. It's all been about Jesus anyway. It's never been about any of us. And friends, that is a call not just to the elders. That is a call to each one of us as Christians. 
the chief shepherd is coming back and we will all stand before him and give, a, give an account. Are you faithfully serving God? Are you faithful in the life that he has called you to live right now? Are you part of this flock? His flock. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they come to me. Have you heard the voice of Jesus? And have you come to him? Have you identified yourself with his flock? May we be a church that serves faithfully as we look forward to our chief shepherd coming back. And may we be a church that prays that God will always fill this flock with godly elders. Amen?